Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. This is your host, Joe Sibilia, and joining me today is somebody who I consider to be a friend, and he's one of the funniest stand-up comics working today. Uh, he's recorded two comedy albums at the Friars Club, Turner Sparks Live from the Friars Club in 2019 and Double Happiness, released in 2022. And he's the host of the Lost in America podcast, which you can listen wherever podcasts are found, including this one. And uh, his name, in case you haven't figured it out yet, is Turner Sparks. Turner, what a pleasure to talk to you today on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. And I just want to say already, this is the most professional show I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I've done so many podcasts where the comedians don't even introduce you. They, they just they come on and they're like, you start, you just talking and they're like, Hey, so what do you, what do you have for lunch today? And you're telling them. And then you're like, at some point you're like, are we on the air? They're like, yeah, we started recording five minutes ago. I'm like, <laughs> is the audience going to know who I am? And they're like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. This is Turner. And I'm like, they've already turned it off. <laughs> they're not listening anymore. I, I don't so have the band the- in the room uh, to play you on or anything. It's, uh, yeah, it's not so as professional as you would think. <laughs> you introduced me. You're yeah. You're in a radio studio right now. I feel like this is real Hollywood. Yeah, this is showbiz. <laughs> yeah, you got a nice microphone too. So I've been with people that you know they uh, I, they're in their car, they're wherever else. So at least yeah, I have you in one spot. We shouldn't have given it away. People might think we're in the same room, right? Yeah. So <laughs> if only we were at the Friars Club together again, because I I, I, that's where we met, and uh, I always have a fun time uh, chatting with you there. How did you get involved with the Friars Club? You're a young guy like myself. Uh, who brought you into the Friars Club to begin with? Yeah. And then let's also say this. I mean, people at the Friars Club kind of lump us together as they're like, oh, it's the young guys, the young guys. Meanwhile, I'm like 15 years older than you. No, you're not. I just look young. Yeah. I'm 41 years old. You're 41? Yes. My Uh, goodness. I need to get some work done. No. What are you talking about? You look great. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know if you want to say your age on there, but you're in your 20s. I'm 27. Yeah. I I don't mind saying that. But people are always like the two young guys over there. And I just don't say anything. I'm like, yeah, yeah it sounds <laughs> yeah, good. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. There are so some people involved. who look young for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Uh, a lot of whoever. Do we have a club um, plastic surgeon? Because if not, I we mean, should. They had a barber there for years. They had a yeah, salon there. Yeah, there should be a floor where you can get like Botox and life. We need, we need done. that for sure. <laughs> it would be busy all day, every day. Uh, so I got involved. 2018, I believe, maybe seven. No, I think 18. I went to watch a show. So I had a friend who was performing there and he just said, hey, I'm performing at the Friars Club. Would you want to come? And to me, like the Friars Club is, you know, it's always been this mythical place, this legendary place. I never knew anyone who would perform there. I never thought I would ever know anyone who would perform there. So the fact that I even knew someone who was he was just doing a spot on a stand up comedy show there. So sometimes the club has comedy shows like stand up shows. He was doing he was doing 10 minutes. So my wife and I went. We got all dressed up. We're very excited. And then um, I think at the end of the show or maybe right before the show started, they announced they said, oh, we have all these big events coming up. We have. You know, there's like the the steak dinner next month and then there's the seafood dinner and then 
there's this in the summer, there's going to be this big international comedy show with comedians from 20 different countries. And uh, to, to hear more about that, or if you would like to join the club, potentially talk to one of us after the show. And um, so it was the people who were in charge back then. And so after the show, the international thing per, uh, perked me up because I started my comedy career internationally. I started my first six years. I was based in China, but I performed all over Asia. And at th to that point, I'd only moved to New York in 2016. So up until that point, I knew more in international comedians than I knew domestic comedians. Right. Because my community initially was all people from Europe and Asia and Australia and all over the Russia, all these comedians. So I knew all these international comedians. So after the show, I found someone who worked at the club and I said, Hey, this is so cool. You're doing this international show. Who do you have booked? And the guy I talked to kind of like stammered and hoed and hum a little bit. And he goes, well, we got some people from here and then you were there. But yeah, I don't know if you would know them. You might not know. And I said, no, no, no. I started it internationally. I know all these. I would know everybody. And then his ears perked up and he said, wait, you started internationally? I said, yeah, I started in China. And I kind of gave him my story. And he said, OK, well, I'll be honest with you. We have no one booked. Uh we had this idea. We thought it was going to be a great show. And then we don't know any international comedians. So if you know them, can you help us book the comedians? And I was like, yeah, I know it. Sure. No problem. And so then for the next two months, I essentially like produced this show. I got in touch with all these comedians I knew who were from all these different countries. A lot of them based in New York or maybe flying through New York around that time. I booked the whole show. The show went on i wasn't even i didn't even perform on it i literally just booked the show and then brought a few friends and came and hung out and watched the show and then at the end of that kind of two-month project the club i guess had done research on me over the course of that time realized i was a comedian had found clips of me doing stand-up asked me to join the club so i joined the club as a comedian without ever doing comedy at the club initially before i go any further I'm talking to you right now, and I can see there's something on your wall. All I see is the corner of this frame, but I see it says Larry King Dean, so it must be a Friars thing. What, what is that for exactly? Yeah, so there you go. I, I forgot that was even right there. So this is on my wall. I have a framed um, uh, poster, I guess, of it. So that was 2018 when I joined. Right. Fast forward like three or four months, and I've now joined the Friars Club. And Larry, the cable guy, finds me through some recordings I had done and asked me to join his record label. He started he has this new record label. He's looking for comedians. He wants me to join and he wants me to record an hour of audio comedy, a comedy hour that will then go on to Sirius XM radio, Sirius XM radio. He has his own channel on Sirius XM radio as Jeff and Larry's comedy roundup him and Jeff Foxworthy. So he's like, you record on my label. You go. We put you onto the radio. Um, you can do it anywhere you want to do it in the world. And I said, I just joined the Friars Club. Could I do it there? And Larry, the cable guy's blown away. He's like, you joined the Friars Club? He's like, of course. He's like, I've always wanted to join the Friars Club. I've always wanted to be a part of the Friars Club. This would be amazing if one of my albums is recorded at the Friars Club. And so I said, yeah, sure. I would love to do it there, too. Let me ask the club. And the club said, uh, and all I had heard is that, well, the club's very protective of the brands and they're probably going to say no, but we can ask. They're probably going to say no, but let's ask. So then we asked and they, the club said, absolutely. Yes. And they also said, we don't think there's ever been a comedy album recorded here, a stand up, an hour of comedy. We've done roasts and all that, but an hour of comedy recorded here. So yes, let's do it. 
So the poster I have on the wall is in 2019, a year after I joined the club, I recorded my first hour of comedy at the club. It's called Live from the Friars Club. Uh, the, the cover is a picture of me on stage during that show at the club with the logo in the background. And the poster is the poster we made advertising that event. So getting people to come out that night, we sold out both shows in the Milton Burl room. It was pretty great. But yeah, that's what that poster is right there. Now that's a great poster. So now I have had uh, in my uh, all too brief career so far the opportunity to uh, to interview Larry the Cable Guy, and I always, I always find it a strange experience only because he plays a character. Now when you're talking to him, it's like, do I address you as Larry the Cable Guy? Do I address you by your real name? What is the real Larry the Cable Guy like in your experience, Turner? He's fantastic. Um, he's. I so take it he's very savvy as a businessman. Incredibly savvy. Yeah, he's very smart. So he has his own. He's almost like, you know how Kiss, the band Kiss? Uh, yes. They have Kiss action figures and Kiss, not just T-shirts. Like most bands just had T-shirts. They had lunch boxes. They had cartoons. They had like, they were savvy, right? He's savvy in the same way. So there's Larry the Cable Guy barbecue chips. He has his own line of barbecue potato chips you could buy. He has he puts out a million different comedy comedy in a million different ways. So he has comedy specials by himself. He has the tour like behind the scenes of the 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 um the what was it called blue collar comedy tour with right. him and Fox or you know that. So that was a whole show. So he's figured out what he does and in a million different ways to twist the brand and, and you know twist the angle on how you're seeing everything he does. Um, he's a great dude. He has his own channel on SiriusXM. I will say I've only spoken to him on the air. Really? Yeah. So I've, we text a lot and we've tweet, you know, private message on Twitter and everything. But actually speaking, I've never picked up the phone and talked to him. So I've only spoken to him as Larry the Cable Guy. His name's Dan Whitney. Yeah. Um, but he also is almost Larry the Cable Guy. So the way I would explain it, anyone, you're from New York City, is that right? I'm from Jersey originally. Oh, you're from Jersey. Yeah, okay. I'm a fraudulent New Yorker. <laughs> okay. And is this the way, you have a very radio voice, but is this the way the people from your town speak? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. And, and thankfully for them, it's not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And when you go back to your town, do you find yourself like slipping into the kind of lingo? A lot of people, there's this phenomenon that you speak the way you speak, but wherever you grow up, when you go back there, when you talk to those friends on the phone, you kind of get in. My dad lives has lived in California since his 20s, but he's from eastern, southeast New Mexico, almost close to Texas. Oh, OK. When, his, when he picks up the phone and one of, it's one of his friends from there, I can tell immediately because his voice changes. Right. I know what you rhythm. mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I would describe the difference between Larry the, guy, Larry the Cable Guy, the character, and Dan Whitney, the person. Because the only difference is he's from Nebraska. He's not from the south. But he is from the middle of nowhere. He is from the country and he 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 lives on like 50 acres and he has farm animals. He is a country dude. Right. And so him, when he goes into his character, it's almost just slipping into that this southern accent that he relates to. But it's not him. But it's he's almost the same person. I got to attend the taping of your second album you did, Double Happiness, at the Friars mm. Club. And the funniest part was I didn't know until the end of the show. I was sitting next to your lovely wife the whole oh. time at the show. How long does it take you to put together your material uh, for a comedy album like one of the two that you did at the Friars? Um, it, it, so I've done it twice now. 
the fr- it's hard to say exactly, but I would say it takes about 18 months, oh my God. Uh, a year to 18 months to write a new hour of comedy. And then to get it good enough to record, there's a difference between having an hour that you can go on the road and perform with and then having an hour that you want to commit to be on tape on record forever that you need every word to be correct, every punch, every call, the punchline, but to call back to something 30 minutes earlier. You, so really, really well crafted to something that you actually want to put out. That's, I would say two years. So somewhere between, yeah, I would say it's about two years. So an, a year to 18 months to get it up and running to where you're cool just to go perform it live. And then another year or so on the road where you're refining it and tweaking it. And maybe it takes six months to realize, well, this one joke that I thought was great, it's actually average compared to all this newer material I've written that's a lot better. So I need to either make that joke better or drop it and bring in a full new one. So there's a lot of that, a lot of tweaking, maneuvering, and, and testing. But yeah, it's, it's, and it takes, so it's been a year now since I recorded the last one. Right, um, but it it didn't come out until September, so no one actually heard it. If you didn't see me perform it live, you didn't hear it until at earliest September, which is six months ago. So now I'm about twenty to thirty minutes into the new hour, and I guess I'm about on target. It should be about uh, probably in six more months. I'll have an hour of new stuff, and then I'll need another year of twisting and tweaking and connecting all the bits and all that kind of stuff. That is insane. I don't know how you do that. It so, takes a while. So yeah. How do you tour, though? If, if uh, you use up all your material on the album, how do you go back out on the road and do more? So it's tough. So what you do is, so what I can do now, since I've, I've, now I'm my, into my third hour. So what I can do now is um, what, uh, the, the ones, so I only have like 20 or 30 minutes of new stuff right now, but you also kind of assume that at the show, you take... I'll do maybe the three or four best bits, most popular bits from Double Happiness, my second album, and I'll continue doing those. Just under the assumption that if somebody has that album, they might want to hear a couple of the bits a second times because they might have told their friends about it. Like, oh, this one joke's great. You got to hear him do it. And then I do it. But they don't want me to do some. They don't want it to be 100% what they heard on the album. They're like, I know all of these jokes. Why am I here? You know, I could have just stayed home and listened to the album. So I'll put two or three of those in. That'll get me up to like 35, 40 minutes. And then I'll do maybe 10 minutes of stuff from the first album. Two or three more bits from the first album. That gets me up to about 50. And then I'll write five to 10 minutes of jokes about the town I'm in. That is literally only going to be used that night. (laughs) And that'll get me up to an hour. And then you throw it away. And then the next weekend you're in a new town and you're writing five to 10 new minutes about that town. And I'll usually open with that because it draw it connects me to the audience. I always say stand-up's like a conversation, and you wouldn't and you're walking into a room of strangers every time you do stand-up. It's two hundred people, it's three hundred, even if it's twenty people, it's people who don't know you personally. They might have heard your album. They might not. They might just be there because a friend told them to go and you're but they don't know who you are. And so, or they might have got free tickets like you know, they bought a steak dinner down the street and included free tickets to the comedy club because the comedy <laughs> club's going out of business, you know, and they need to fill they need to fill the room. You don't know why people are there. So I always say you wouldn't walk into a conversation with strangers and start talking about yourself immediately. 
You wouldn't be like, well, here's what I think about the world. They'd be like, first of all, who are you and why are you here? You know, so you would start talking about whatever they're talking about. You would jump in on their conversation. So for me, the way I do that by jumping in on their conversation is talking about things I've observed in their town over the last 24 or 48 hours or however long, however long I've been there. And if you see me on the first night I'm in town, it, it's usually not, I don't have that many observations, but by the second or third night, I can usually build it out. But see, that's very old school because that's what uh, comedians like Bob Hope used to do. Bob Hope would have his writers go to the town and do some research and, you know, learn about, you know, who's the mayor, who who are they for, who are they against. And it was similar when he would perform for the troops. He'd find out, you know, who's the commanding officer that they're all up against that they don't like. And he'd yeah. have the writers cook up all material for him pertaining to that specific subject. I literally, comedy is just, it's a knife fight and you're just trying to survive. So that's how I've figured out how to survive. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you're walking on stage and you, you have to train yourself not to think this way. But for the first few years, obviously, like just logically, the crowd is all with you. They've paid to come see you. They're there to hopefully have a good time and they want you to be good. They're rooting for you. But for the first decade in comedy, in your brain, you think they're rooting against you. You think you're walking on stage with a knife and all 300 of them have a knife pointing at you. And you're like in a Kung Fu movie where you're like, I got to take down these 300 people one by one and then try to win. And eventually you find out, oh, no, it's more like uh, it's uh, it's like uh, what's his name? Like Bruce Lee. It's like water. We're all on the same team. We just got to figure out how to work together. You know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but one way I figure that out is, yeah, you get to you go out to the mall. I try to do a couple things when I get into town so I can just have life experiences that they might relate to. You have always been very active with the Friars in, uh, in, in the uh, couple of years I've known you for, and uh, I, I know that you pretty much always are going to the different Friars events. I, you were at the Tracy Morgan testimonial uh, that they held last May. What have been some of your favorite events that they've done at the Friars Club, and, uh, and what, what has been your main takeaway from the different uh, shows and uh, testimonials, dinners, or what have you that you've gone to over the years? I mean, for, they're all fantastic, um, really. The, the Tracy Morgan one, I think, was far and away the highlight. That was so – what do you think? Oh, I like, thought was it was so incredible. Cool. I thought I thought it was a great night. I thought the uh, the guest list that was there was uh, not to be It was out believed. of control. It, it was, was amazing. New York City, right? It definitely. It was New York. And that was it, sort of the whole uh, impetus behind it was that the theme of the night was supposed to be New York is back, and you had not one, not two, but three former mayors of New York City in the same room. It really was a very uh, gratifying and unifying event from people of all walks of life. Well, so many things now that you do and events you go to and TV shows you watch and comedians you watch and everything, it's it's hyper uh, uh, political and polarized. So it's if you you're going to like these three Netflix comedy specials, if you're this political of stripe, you know, and then you're going to hate them if you're the opposite one. But we got three other ones for you. And events are like that, you know, and what I liked about the, the Tracy Morgan event, it was non it was nonpartisan at all it was just the good the bad and the ugly all of new york city thrown into the same room i mean you had a obi toppin and emmanuel quickly from the knicks were there the right. new york knicks alan houston from the knicks was there and then you had rudy giuliani was there yeah and then you had mayor eric adams was there and, bill de blasio 
De Blasio was there. Uh, my mom, my parents came. They flew in from California. Oh, wow. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So my parents flew in from California. And then my wife, Yaya, and I, uh, and the four of us went together. And my mom's two, there was like all, I mean, the, the list goes on. Steve Byrne, the stand-up comedian who had a, a, a sitcom on TBS for a long time was there. A couple of the Impractical Jokers were there. Right. Sherry um, Shepard. Sherry Shepard. Deborah Roberts. J.B. Smoove. CeeLo Green. CeeLo performed. Yeah. I mean, it was just out of control. Out of all of those people and 100 that we're even forgetting, Paul Schaefer and from, the, from David yes. Letterman next to us. Out of all those people, the, the two people my mom was most blown away by, starstruck to see, number one, Geraldo. Right, Geraldo. Blew her, like she was so, she's like, I got to talk to Geraldo. I got to talk. Oh my gosh, Geraldo's <laughs> here. I mean, my mom's like a boomer. She's like a, seven, you know, mid seventies, like spent her whole life watching Geraldo on TV. She's like, who cares about Sherry Shepard? It's Geraldo is the person, you know? <laughs> right, right. And then the other one was, I, and this was uh, Arthur Adala, the, the dean of our club, mentioned this offhand, like as a throwaway line when he was on stage. He said, oh, um, I believe in Natalie. Natalie White is here. You know, her grandmother is Betty White. And then he like moved on to something else. My mom was like, I have to meet Betty White's or no grand niece. Or yeah, like niece, niece, I think. Something. Yeah. Betty White didn't I, have children. I don't think I have to meet Betty White's niece. Yeah. I have to meet Betty White's niece. <laughs> Can you ask? And I was like, mom, I, yeah, I, I know it's Natalie. And she goes, did you know she was Betty White's niece? I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I've known her for years. I didn't know she was Betty White's niece. She's like, well, can you ask her if I could take a picture with her? I was like, sure. I mean, it's, she'll think it's ridiculous, but sure. And then I asked her, I was like, Natalie, my mom wants to take a picture with you. She's like, me? I'm like, yeah. She's like, why? I'm like, because you're Betty White's niece. She's like, oh, okay. Sounds good. She's at a table with Paul Schaefer and Mike Reese, the uh, original oh, right. writer for, yeah. for The Simpsons, who that was, I was, I was most blown away to meet. Oh, I was too. Mike Reese. I talked to him. one. I talked to him probably for about an hour at the Friars Club at the after party, and and he's been on the podcast since then. So uh, he's done my show, my stand up show at the club at the Friars Club. He came and did a, a set. Did he a really? Set. Yeah, and he hadn't done stand up since college. His wife came, and all of his friends, like from college, came to the show, and they were all asking me, "They're like, how'd you get him to do stand up?" He always says no. He people ask, he never does this. I'm like I don't know. I just I asked him at the Tracy Morgan event. He said yes. That's so awesome. he came and did it and he killed. He was so funny. Just destroyed for 15 minutes to the point where I'm like, everyone in the room was like, all the comedians were like, this guy, you, he could walk off stage, right? He could go be a professional comedian today. Yeah. He could go down to the comedy cellar and kill whenever he wants. He was so funny. He's a funny guy. I mean, to, to last in the business as long as he has and to write for the myriad of uh, performance he has, he's written for everybody from, I think Gary Shandling to Johnny Carson to uh, and writing for The Simpsons for 40 years at The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> However I mean, long it's, it's like, been, it's it's uh, it's certainly uh, an accomplishment. Uh, now, you're on the Board of Governors, correct? Yes. So how did you get nominated to the Board of Governors and uh, and what do your duties entail as a governor of the Friars Club? Well, uh, I let's see. How did I get involved? OK, so during the pandemic, they, they sent out an email and they said, um, hey, we're kind of overhauling the board. Um, we want to bring in a lot of new people. If anyone has any ideas, send us three ideas that you would do to improve the club. And um, and then basically, if you want to join the board, tell us, uh, tell us an email, send us an email saying you want to join and give us three ideas you would do to improve the club. And 
then we'll get back to you like at some point in the future. Right. So I send in three ideas. I think my first idea, which which they put into uh, action was I thought we should have some type of co-working space at the club where in general, um, previous to the pandemic, previous to the new new regime or management, the idea was that the club was every room was private. I don't know. When did you join the club? What year? Uh, well, I guess technically my induction was last year. I guess I would say 2021 would be the year I okay. I became involved in 2021 and my actual induction ceremony was uh, the following February. In, uh, oh, I was there for that. Yeah, I you were. I, I, that's right. I think that's the first time we met, actually. Yeah. Might have been. Yeah, it could have been. So previous to the pandemic, um, and I don't know how long, people who maybe are listening to this and they remember in the 90s, maybe this wasn't the case, but for the few years I was a member before the pandemic, even being a member, you couldn't just walk into any room at the club. You could walk in, but you couldn't use it. You needed to call the club, reserve it, and then rent it. So if I would say, yeah, I want to, I will have a one hour meeting. I want to use the Johnny Carson room or Johnny Carson. Yeah. The third floor, Johnny Carson, room. George yeah. Burns, George Burns. Sorry. The George yeah. Burns room. If I said, <laughs> I want to use the George Burns room on the third floor of a one hour meeting, they would say, okay, that'll be a thousand dollars. Um, and then I would say, oh, never mind. I'll just go to a Starbucks. <laughs> And so, <laughs> so that was kind of the way it worked. And uh, so then, therefore, anytime you would go there, there would be no one was using any of the rooms because nobody wanted. They just was, stand in the lobby and uh, uh, yeah, kibitz. It didn't make sense. You could sit at the bar for free and you could, you know, the bars, but you couldn't use any of the private rooms. So no one was using any of the private rooms. And the messaging to me was always, well, but what happens if somebody does want to pay us that much money? Or why would we give you that room for an hour? What if somebody books a wedding or a banquet dinner or a meeting? And, that, you know, once a year, somebody did. But the other 364 days of the year, it was just empty. So my general message in, the, in my email to the club was, in general, we need to flip the business model. This needs to be a club where every if you join the club, every room is open to everybody. And we just need to get people in the door. We give them the room for free and then they'll buy drinks and food and all that stuff while they're there and they'll bring friends. But we're kind of saying no to people at step one at the door. Like, no, no, don't come in. You have to pay us a thousand bucks and we need to get more of the comedy community coming in. So I said, step one is we need a co that this room. We had a room that was just sitting empty for a long time. So let's turn that into a co-working space and that'll we'll throw TVs and couches and almost like a high-end, um, like a Delta lounge was the pitch I gave. Right. Where we might have some snacks in there. You can go in, you can use it. We've got Wi-Fi, we've got printers. But anyone can come in and have meetings or just hang out, whatever they need to do, in that room. That's one, one idea. The second idea was a podcast studio. I said, let's take a space on the fifth floor in the basement or something and turn it into a podcast studio. Every single comedian in New York has a podcast. At that time, we all had to rent space. This was pre-Zoom. Right. So actually, I don't know if this even is necessary anymore, but at the time we were all renting space around town as a podcast studio. But if you're a, so my idea was if you're a member, you get to use the podcast studio. So as part of your membership, you also get this space. So financially, you're, it's already making sense. Instead of spending 50 bucks a week to use a studio, 
you just pay your yearly fee and you have it open to you. Um, and then step three was on the fourth or fifth floor. I can't remember which floor it is, but there was a room that was a card room and we wanted to turn it into, the idea was to turn it into a full-time comedy room. So it only is like a 40 seat room, but any comedian member at the club can host a weekly show up there, a monthly show, whatever they want. And it won't interfere with the Milton Berle room. Right. Which is so the big the time, money-making room there for the big money-making room where you have banquets and you have dinners and you have conferences and all that kind of stuff. So we could do comedy and you could still have the conference on the second floor and they could both kind of interact together. So those, I think, were my three ideas. And then the fourth one, which they said no to immediately, was uh, put a hot tub on the balcony. <laughs> and I would have been for that. <laughs> I think the exact messaging was, Turner, we already have enough lawsuits. We don't need more. So. <laughs> That would they said the last thing we need is drunk friars with their shirts off. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been that would have been quite the sight to behold. But I said, come on, we got a cigar deck, balcony. Now we're talking. You know what I mean? <laughs> that might turn more people away, seeing everyone with their shirts off. Yeah, than yeah, yeah. Bring was, people through the door. <laughs> yeah, I got a hard no. <laughs> off of that, they emailed me a couple months later. They said these are great. We want you to join the join the board. And you're the kingpin, Turner. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Do people still use that phrase "kingpin"? I don't. I, I that's not a Pennsylvania the, thing. Well, it's in the mafia, don't they? Isn't yeah. that a mob? Thing? Uh, mafia, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Do they even exist? <laughs> exactly. That's what I always say. The mafia is a myth. It, it's a family. It's a myth. Yeah, we're doing good. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you got into comedy because you have quite the interesting backstory. You moved to China for quite some time and yeah. you're a bit of an entrepreneur yourself. You brought Mr. Softy to China. How, how did that come to be? Yeah. Well, you know what I said to myself? I said, I want, I was, I grew up in California and I said, I want to start comedy. I'm going to go to the center of comedy, uh, Shanghai, China. A good move. And, yeah. <laughs> because why go to the sunset strip when you could yeah, <laughs> go why to LA? Yeah, come on. Yeah, it's too boring. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I moved to China when I was 23. I was going to teach English for a year. I did that for a year. And then I decided the Mr. Softy ice cream trucks, which we, there's 700 of them in the U.S. Um, I decided to take that brand and franchise it to where I was living in China. And I went to college with the grandson of the founder of Mr. Softy, a friend of mine I met in college. I already knew his family really well. And so I saw in the city I was living in, it's called Suzhou. It's about an hour from Shanghai. And there's six, at the time, six million people. Now there's 10 million people who live in this town. And Shanghai is 22, 25 million, something like that. So think of, really, it was the size of LA. Right. Size of Los Angeles, where I was living. There was only places to get ice cream, soft serve ice cream. There was, uh, it was KFC and McDonald's. And all they had was just like a basic vanilla cone. I knew Mr. Softy brand. The dip cones, the banana splits, the milkshakes, uh, all the sundaes, all these things. And I said, if we take a Mr. Softy truck and put it on the streets here, it'll absolutely destroy. So we did that, opened our first truck 2007. I think I started the business when I was 23, 24 years old and ran it until I was 34. So 10 years. And um, we ended up building, we had 10 trucks and two stores at the height of the business, actually all the way up until the end. 
and uh, did really well. I mean, I was just a, a businessman in China for a decade selling ice cream, jumping on some of these trucks, but working out of an office, managing the whole staff. I was going to ask you, did you drive the truck? I wasn't allowed to drive because I had a driver's license, but I didn't have you needed a specific like long haul trucker's license, oh, basically. Yeah. Because some... the size of the truck was so big. But I worked on the truck pretty often. Um, I would go. We had once we had 10, I would kind of bounce from truck to truck for an hour or so once a day, jump on one of them and then go back to the office and put out whatever fire was going on back at the office. Um, but, yeah, it was crazy. It was my life for a decade. We had everything happen. I had my. We, we had to infi- fire two employees one time for stealing. And then uh, I drove home that night, woke up the next morning, and all the tires were slashed on my car in, oh, in my home. Um, I, we had a guy break in one night to our warehouse and steal a safe, and we knew exactly who it was. It was, a, it was an employee, and all he did to disguise himself was he took his employee jacket and like, put it over his head so the cameras wouldn't see him in the warehouse. But he was the all the other employees were short, fat guys. He was the only tall, skinny guy. So we <laughs> caught him immediately. He went to prison for six months. It was wild. It was a wild decade in China. Um, super fun. Learned a lot. Did business for ten years, and um, and halfway through that, started a, open. I started doing comedy as a hobby. I started an open mic stand up show, which ended up being the first open mic in China. First uh, our style comedy, Western style comedy. That turned into a tour, which turned into a comedy club in Shanghai that I ran for a number of years before we sold that. And then I moved back to the U.S. in 2016. But how does comedy in China differ than it does in the United States? So it's different only in the sense there was in Shanghai at the time, there was 100,000 English speaking expats. So expats from Europe, Australia, uh, Russians, Germans who speak English, Africans who speak English, you know. And and then on top of that, a lot of Chinese people spoke English. So imagine us in a city in the size of like 100,000 people. It's big enough to hold the comedy club. So we had comedy five days a week in English, and then we would have certain shows in Chinese. Um, the only way it really differed is there was a few things you weren't allowed to talk about on stage. The main thing being the Chinese government. And... We told people, just don't say anything good or bad about the Chinese government. Don't bring up the president by name. Don't bring up the government. Because even if you're saying something good, someone in the crowd might not speak English perfectly. They might mishear what you're saying and then go report it to the government. And then our club gets shut down. And then we go out of business. So we said, just avoid it. There's literally a zillion other things on planet Earth to talk about. You could talk about the American government all you want. They love that. <laughs> yeah. Trash uh, the U.S. <laughs> so that was kind of it. Just don't talk about the Chinese government. Besides that, it was really free. People always assume the comedy had to be clean. It didn't have to be clean. You could talk about sex. They didn't care about anything as long as it was just not about, not about the Chinese government. You work very clean. That surprised me uh, when I saw your show at the Friars Club. I'm thinking this will probably end up being, you know, very, you know, dirty, a lot of four-letter words. And not one four-letter word in the whole show that I can remember. Yeah. It was at, it was one of the funniest shows I ever saw was uh, seeing oh. the, the taping of your album. It was it was fantastic. You had a Thank great you. bit. Great bit about the uh the apple orchards, which I love, and <laughs> and the one about appropriate since we're recording this right around Easter, the uh, the Easter egg hunt for the keys and uh, and the phone and the wallet, which I go through on a daily basis. Oh my gosh, I always phone wallet keys. Where's my phone? Where's my wallet? Where's my keys? <laughs> Every day, that my wife's like, I told you to put it in the same place. 
Uh, you know, I don't put it in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's always clean. I decided a few years ago, I was like 90% clean. And I got asked to do this clean show for this one specific group. And I kind of just enjoyed going through the process of writing this, just getting rid of the last 10% that wasn't clean or adjusting it however I needed to. And then I just started writing that way. I host now a show every Wednesday night in Park Slope, Brooklyn at the Postmark Cafe. It's called the Living Room Comedy Show. It's a clean show. And I find it's usually pretty... I find the show becomes more creative. I'm not saying clean's better or dirty's better, but I just find this show I host every Wednesday, it's comedians of all stripes who come and do it. There's sometimes there's very dirty comedians who do it and they'll just be clean for the night. And I find the topics that everyone talks about will, will differ a lot more um, because sometimes I do the like regular shows and there'll be three comedians in a row, a row talking about how they like to get choked during sex or something, you know? <laughs> and I've literally seen that. Like, does everyone have the same bit? Is everyone doing the same or whatever that might be? You know? So this makes people really kind of use your brain, like adjust, adjust in your mind. And I then do a lot of private shows, a lot of corporate shows, a lot of stuff like that where they ask clean. So it kind of opened up a lot more avenues for me. Plus I still do all the regular comedy clubs in New York city. And most of the time, if I'm doing 10 or 15 minutes, no one even notices that I'm clean. Right. Which, which is ideal. I, I want it to be, I want people to notice it if that's what they're looking for and that's what they came out for it. But if they're not looking for it, I want it to them to not even realize. You have sort of spearheaded a project at the Friars Club uh, that uh, I uh, really admire, which is that you sort of taken the lead on digitizing the archives of the Friars materials, the roasts and the testimonials and what have you. Uh, how, how did you get into that project and what has been uh, the result of uh, your efforts so far? Thank you. Um, yes. So, so far, so good with that. We're, it's a long process, but the idea... I went to um, Arthur uh, and uh, our former manager about a year ago and said that, or maybe a little more than a year ago, and said, hey, I, I was just like naively saying, hey, I had an idea. You know, like everyone has ideas at our club. At every, at every private club, the members are coming up all the time being like, <laughs> we should do this. We should do this. We should do this. Even though the hot tub didn't work out. <laughs> Even though the hot tub, I kept pitching, kept pitching Can, ideas. Can't you get the Friars with Mr. Softy Truck? Come on. Oh, we tried. We tried. No, you and, didn't. Really? <laughs> yeah, we did. The issue was we would have had to buy a machine, like oh. a soft serve machine. Yeah. And with our budget, I mean, we're already, you know, I was like, I don't think this is the best use. That would look great with all the booze behind the bar. It, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Soft serve <laughs> machine. So we ended up not doing That's someday for the future, though, you know. We could only um, hope. <laughs> so I thought it started this idea, this digitizing thing. I went to uh, the head of our club, and he said... That sounds great, Turner. Go do it. Which is, that's exactly what I would say to anybody who came to me with the idea. If I was the head of a club, I'd be like, good, you do the work. You know, because I'm sure that you're getting pitched all the time and people are like, no, I'm the ideas man. I just, so I pitched the idea. They said, go, yeah, if you, if you can put this together. Um, and the more, and so we started talking about it. I started talking about it with the club. We realized we have a closet at the club that I'm not sure if you're aware of, but it, it's an archive. It's essentially a closet, but it's wall to wall, top to bottom, back to front, tapes, CDs, records, actual records, uh, VHS, Betamax, any type, any form of format you can imagine 
of all of our old roasts and testimonial dinners and stand-up shows going back to the 1920s. We're now digitizing that entire vault. And now, so once we get it in a format that can potentially, the audio can potentially go on the radio, the video, or even onto a YouTube channel, onto our own Spotify channels, right? We can create Friars Club Radio on Spotify. People can go through and listen um, into album format that we can start putting out as a album every month, a new Friars Club roast from the, I mean, I was in that closet looking at it. I found a roast, a Richard Pryor roast from 1992. Right. That's a legendary one. And it's private. It's, this wasn't on comedy central. This wasn't anywhere. It's only in our vault. Right. So if we I found a John Travolta roast from around the same time. Um, I mean, it's like anybody and everybody. So if we could start putting these out month by month at a, a subscription service, maybe you get one every month or something. And then not to mention the video. There's so much video. We could start doing a YouTube channel that hosts all this video all the way up to a Netflix documentary or something like anywhere in between. Right. So we're now in the process of digitizing all that. Hopefully we'll be done soon. And then hopefully we'll have stuff to announce in the not too distant future of where all this is going to live. There's certainly a market for it now. I mean, you see there are shows like the Ed Sullivan show that went off the air, you know, 50 plus years ago, and they have a YouTube channel and they get a ton of views on these old videos of their uh, performers. Totally. Johnny Carson. Yeah, that's Um, a great one. I just went up to the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York. I was doing shows up there and that place is really cool. It's like a it's like a Hall of Fame for comedy, but we don't have Hall of Fame yet, but it's everything that a Hall of Fame would have besides the inductees. And there's a whole Johnny Carson Carson exhibit where you go sit in a room and you feel like you're on the set. You're in the audience at the Johnny Carson show. And then a hologram of him comes out and it's all, I asked him, it's all from, they did the same thing. They just digitized his old catalog. And now they're doing these things with it. The Bee Gees. There's a company we're working with that has done the Bee Gees in the past. Uh, It's like everybody. So why not us? Basically that's, you know, start to monetize all this stuff we have. That's a very admirable project, Turner. Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you one final thing. Uh, why do you think that the Friars Club, after all these years, continues to remain uh, so vital and uh, people are still enamored by the mystique of the Friars Club after over 100 years in existence? Uh, what draws you to it, and why do you think that it's uh, remained uh, a subject of fascination to so many inside and outside of show business? I think that in a world um, where we have to watch what we say more and more and more, and you need to know who you're around and not offend a certain person. And this, I'm not, this isn't a political thing. I've been on stage and no matter if I'm in Texas, there'll be people, Ooh, can't say that in this state. If I'm in California, Ooh, you can't say that in this state. You can't, and you know, you can, you can fill in the blank of what I might be talking about that you're not allowed to say. And I'm a clean comedian. It's not even dirty or clean at this point. Um, I think that the Friars Club, once you get in that club, once the doors close, once the roast starts, once the event starts, anything goes and that's exciting and everyone likes it. And part of it is because it's our it's for us. It's a club for comedians, for entertainers, for people who work in television, radio, film, the people who create what you see on TV and you hear on the radio 
The Friars Club is what they do when they're not do when they're not providing for you and they're providing for themselves. This is what they do. So I think it's a mis- it, that's the mystique. Everybody wants to see behind the curtain. They want to see what we really think is funny, what we really think is entertaining, the things that we can only say for ourselves. And everybody wants in. Well, if you want to know what I really think is funny, I think you are funny, Turner. You are a funny man. And uh, you've been such a champion of this project that I've been doing. Uh, so I thank you for your support always. Uh, your shows are always funny. i got to come out and see you in Park Slope because I live in uh, Bay Ridge. I have to make the, the trip out uh, sometime to see your show. Uh, but uh, but thank you again for coming on. And thank you for uh, being a friend uh, as uh, Betty White or uh, Rue McClanahan or one of those golden girls might say. <laughs> what a way to end it. Thank you for being a friend. Yeah, comparing you to a golden girl, that's ding, the way ding, to go out. <laughs> I don't know if we can license that music. Yeah. But, uh, Joe, thanks for having me, buddy. And same back to you. Uh, it's been a, it's an honor knowing you. And I look forward to many great more great years at the club. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.